Thank you for listening to Ivy Podcast, where we feature weekly leadership conversations with thought leaders and industry experts. Now, here is your host, John Karsibayev. I'm Willie Newman. I'm the founder and CEO of HomePoint. We are a residential mortgage lender and servicer that does business in all 50 states. Willie, thanks so much for making time. Join us on the Ivy Podcast today on a Monday morning. Excited about this conversation, everything that we had planned out with all of the stuff going on, especially in the housing market. Uh, but before we do that, give us a thumbnail version of your career prior to that. Well, it's been pretty long, John. So I gotta, I'm gonna try to compress it a little bit. But I started, so I started in a mortgage business in the late '80s, and uh, I, uh, I met a gentleman, became my mentor, and uh, he, had, he'd seen the confluence of, of several different trends that pointed towards um, smaller companies becoming larger presence, uh, a larger presence in mortgage banking. And so, uh, I partnered up with him, built a company uh, in, in a savings and loan, got bought a couple different times, as is happens in the financial services sector, and eventually we, we became a top five originator and a top ten uh, mortgage servicer. Um, the business was sold in 07, so I got I was fortunate to sit out a good chunk of the financial crisis, but I uh, uh, always uh, enjoyed the startup phase of what we had done. So in 09, started up a business uh, for another bank. It was called Cole Taylor Mortgage and uh, ran that business until 2014. Uh, left there in 14 and, and decided one more time, the third time's a charm, and uh, started up a, a business in partnership with Stone Point Capital, a private equity fund called HomePoint. And uh we opened our doors. We we acquired a company to uh, to enter the business. We opened our doors in uh, April first of two thousand and fifteen, and since then been running as fast as we can to, to build a uh, you know a, a great uh, mortgage company. That's super exciting. Very very diverse career backgrounds, and a lot of the things stand out on the startup space where that you've mentioned a few times, getting acquired and building the company from from the ground up, which you know is always very exciting and challenging at the same time. Uh, maybe tell us a little bit more about the the value proposition of HomePoint at this stage. How do you guys differentiate yourself from the competition, and what is the kind of that unfair advantage of, of what you guys are building? <laughs> well, so yeah, we've evolved quite a bit since 2015, and so you know, I, I'll, I'll assume that there's less familiarity with the mortgage business, but. There, there are several different ways in which you can originate a mortgage. And uh, one way is on a direct basis. Um, um, you can have a call center with with, uh, with agents. You can have advertising. You can have people coming into it. Um, probably the most common is having retail loan officers on the street. So branches and uh, loan officers that are sourcing loans through referral sources. Um, another way to do it is through what we call wholesale lending. And that is in partnering with mortgage brokerages. Um, so when we started out HomePoint, um, my, my career has really been built, John, on dislocation. So really looking for dislocation. Mortgage is a very cyclical industry and uh, and looking for those dislocations as they occur and then stepping in to take advantage of those. And um, previously in my career, wholesale has been the way to do it. Um, didn't assume that when we started up HomePoint in 2015, it wasn't apparent uh, what channel might end up um, being the one to be most advantageous, especially as it relates to potential dislocation in the market. But in 2018, we saw as interest rates rose that um, wholesale lending and the broker segment had become much more efficient, at least from our perspective, than other channels of origination. So 
we stepped into wholesale uh, more heavily in 2018. And since then, I've really styled the organization and, and in essence, retooled the organization so that we would be solely focused on uh, wholesale lending and partnering with mortgage brokerages in order to originate loans. That's very interesting. And for, for the common folk out there, when we talk about wholesaling and partnering with mortgage brokers, so if I am in the process of buying a home and I go to a mortgage broker down the street who works with many different lenders, he, mm-hmm. he or she, they have a relationship with HomePoint uh, for any type of, I guess, special deals or anything that's, I don't know, that, that based on the transactional relationship with them. And they're able to get me probably the best deal for my particular situation or the acquisition I'm trying to get by having that relationship with HomePoint. Is that more or less accurate description? Yeah, it is. So, so yeah, so I, here's how I, I, I think, because I think there is, you know, it's a little bit opaque as to how things work in the mortgage business. So, you know, as a consumer, uh, uh, it, it typically is an infrequent transaction. There are times where it's more frequent because rates go down, people refinance, but quite often it may be something that uh, a consumer only does once every several years. And so the best way, I, the way I would characterize it, John, is that the superpower of a mortgage broker is choice. And the choice that they have is to partner with us or other wholesale lenders um, and, and um, work with the consumer to understand their situation and then pair that situation up with the wholesale lender that's going to provide the best solution for that the, the unique set of circumstances that, that consumer uh, presents. So if you look at, again, if you kind of compare it to retail lending, a retail loan officer will only have one choice. They'll have the choice of the company that they work for. Um, uh, mortgage brokers, on the other hand, have several different, I call it suppliers or choices that they can present to a consumer in a way that optimizes, it, it both aligns them with the consumer and it forces us as a wholesale lender to, to focus entirely on uh, you know, the, the kind of price product service, but in specifically the experience that both the broker has in, in working with us, as well as the consumer that at the end of the day gets the mortgage loan. Mm-hmm. Makes perfect sense. So thanks for that. Um, I, you know, for selfish reasons, I was very excited about this conversation because just like every, you know, a lot of people around me, we invest heavily from on the, on the personal portfolio side into real estate, right. uh, whether that's commercial, multifamily, residential, and so forth, some flips, some short-term rentals, and all of that great stuff. I have a lot of fun there. Um, but at the same time, I spend a lot of time researching the market and trying to understand what's going on and just, you know, not necessarily predict for what's coming, uh, but look at certain indicators that would that would drive my investment thesis, so to say. Mm-hmm. Um, by looking into Willie Newman's crystal ball and you being the professional in that space, you, you know, um, I, I would love to get your perspectives on not necessarily from predicting the market where that's going, but where do you think the current market basically stands? Are you, are you surprised or are you, are you at the end of the day adjusting some of the strategies within the organization? Just tell us maybe a little bit more through that current thought process as you're going through with everything that goes on in the industry. Sure. So, I mean, it's no secret that things have changed very significantly in the last six months in, in you know, whether it's residential real estate and then mortgage, which obviously are, are very much interrelated. Um, you know, rates have gone up faster than any cycle really since the 70s. Um, and there, while there was very significant demand, you know, I mean, demand for a home was definitely outpacing supply. And, you know, I think what you're seeing now is that it's becoming closer to, I'll say equilibrium. There's a certain element, I think demand 
I don't know, kind of like emotional demand is still higher maybe, but ability to actually acquire a home has become you know, more challenged by, by how interest rates have gone up. So I think what you're seeing is a little bit more of a kind of equilibrium. Um, I think for us, you know, one of the things that, that has been different is that we grew very rapidly during the 2020, 2021 cycle because we were a new company, John, it really was our opportunity to build, you know, very, fairly significant scale as an organization. And historically for me, scale has always been an important part of the strategies that I deploy. Um, you know, coming into 22, it did look like it was going to be a different market and it's become a materially different market. And so we really, you know, we've actually downsized the organization and we're taking this opportunity to reset the organization in a way that will allow us again, because th there's a dislocation taking place in the mortgage market. There's, you know, too much supply, not enough demand. You know, supply was built up to meet the 2020, 2021 market. Now it has to, you know, kind of correct into it. So for us, we've, we've tried to get ahead of that some, and we're really retooling, or I'm sorry, resetting the organization in a way that is really looking forward at, okay, we did this in 2020 and 2021, we were successful doing it, but we're not going to assume that that's what's going to be successful in the next cycle. So let's retool the organization in a way that is forward looking and says, okay, it's going to be different. It's going to be more competitive. Um, and we do believe the broker segment in particular will grow um, uh, because of the inherent advantages that, that it presents to consumers. And so let's position the organization to be there. So that's resulted in us downsizing, uh, but also really kind of uh, crystallizing our focus on specifically on the broker experience and by extension, the consumer experience. Makes perfect sense. And thanks for sharing that, uh, which leads me further to the point of innovation, because in mortgage lending, it's... Uh, you know, at least from my lens, from the, the the field that I operate, I haven't been seeing a lot of disruption, a lot of innovation in, in that industry in general. Uh, yes, there are certain products that come on the market. There is probably different lending solutions, uh, different products when it comes to, um, you know, specific loans or so different programs. But outside of that, at least I haven't been seeing a lot of the, the transformation in the, in the industry or the market in general. Uh, maybe talk to us a little bit further about how do you build that culture of innovation at your organization, especially going through the different cycles. You know, it's a very cyclical industry, very cyclical market. Uh, what are some of the strategies that really help you stay innovative and maybe certain practical insights into what really helps? Right. So why well, you identified it? I think for us, you know, I'll, I'll probably this will be like in the uh, category of a confession. But but uh, uh, for us, because it is so cyclical, there are certain points in time where innovation, frankly, takes a backseat to just capacity and throughput. And then there are other points in time where innovation becomes more critical. And so for us, there's a couple of things that we've done. So So I'd say we're at the point now where innovation becomes more critical because you have to be able to differentiate yourself. There's not, you know, if, if supply demand is out of imbalance, it's time to differentiate yourself. And so, you know, a couple of things that, that we're doing, one is um, we've, because of the time we came into the market, John, we, we uh, it, it was going to be difficult for us to compete with some of the larger lenders who have huge technology groups and do a lot of proprietary work on technology. So we took a different path. Um, we really embrace low code uh, technology very early on in its evolution. And so for the last several years, we've been working in low code and increasingly moving our, um, especially the, our associates into the low code environment. Eventually we'll move more of our partners into the low code environment. Sorry. Um, and uh, so, so that, you know, we feel like we've been ahead of the curve in doing that. And 
we believe in an environment like this where not only is innovation important, but the cost of innovation becomes extremely important. We think we can continue to evolve our technology quickly using third-party low-code tools as opposed to large-scale internal development. So, so I'd say that. The second thing we've done is that, like I said, it's like we had our associates for a long time just like making the donuts and and probably not spending a lot of time saying, okay, you know, how can we make this better? And so we've re- very recently instituted something we're calling KISS. And um, it, it has two meanings. Uh, one, and, and this is this was me, my, my executive team wasn't real excited about this one, but I said, KISS to me means there's two meanings to it. One is kill stupid stuff. <laughs> so I don't know if that like falls in the category of innovation, but I think when you grow very rapidly, there's a lot of, and we, we also have divested of some of our business units. So there's lots of things that you kind of accumulate, whether it's um, infrastructure, whether it's process that starts to not as much apply, you know, as you, as you reset the organization, as you become more focused on one channel of business. And so, you know, I've said, let's use the whole organization. Let's engage the whole organization, all, you know, thousand associates in, um, you know, trying to identify if there are things that, are, that we're doing out there that we shouldn't be doing or should be doing them differently. Let's figure that out. The flip side of that, is what I, and I'm using a little artistic license, but we're calling it create smart stuff. <laughs> and so we're going to kill stupid stuff and we're going to create smart stuff. So, so that's obviously a little more exciting. And, uh, but to me, it's like, you almost have to like, it's, it's like, if their analogy is you kind of have those brush fires, you know, you have the forest and then you have the brush that accumulates and you got to burn that out without burning down the whole forest. It's like, we got to get the brush out of there and then we can let the trees grow again. So, so that's one of the ways in which we're engaging our associates um, in a different sense than we were previously, because again, we had them very focused on, um, you know, simply um, the throughput and the velocity of the business. That's super exciting. And I want to double click on something that you've mentioned when it comes to technology and innovation, me coming from a highly technical background that organizations of various size, I'm always curious about the role of technology, especially in operations like yours, because I, I would imagine technology plays a critical role, especially when it comes to making your, your, your mortgage brokers or your partners, so to say, successful when it comes to being more efficient or more, you know, just at the end of the day, be able to help their clients in a, in a much more efficient manner. Tell us a little bit more about that role of technology. How do you guys leverage that? I know you mentioned you guys are trying to be very lean, low code, no code, which is super exciting, very new trends in that space. Uh, tell us maybe some some further use cases as far as how does that help your organization and some of your partners? Yeah, again, I think, I think you know, mo- moving our associates and, our, and eventually our partners into that environment, it really kind of helps us detach from the, the, I'll say, traditional industry technology. So again, we... we we are very low from a proprietary development standpoint. So our infrastructure really is third-party kind of industry um, standard tech type of technology. And so separating, you know, to me, while those technologies are good and obviously they're, they've been, um, they've been long lasting in the industry, sometimes they force you down to the lowest common denominator from a process standpoint. So in lifting up into more into the low code environment, our intention is to really be able to design our process around how we want to do business and also how we want to present ourselves to our partners and eventually consumers. So, so I think that's, you know, that's probably a good, you know, kind of higher level example. So, you know, specific use cases are, are, you know, in our underwriting section, for example, we've kind of taken our underwriters entirely out of the origination system environment. They're working entirely in the low code environment. And it really allows us to, to specifically tailor 
their process around how we want them to work as opposed to, you know, it being dictated by some third party. Mm -hmm. That makes perfect sense. Um, from, from a standpoint of building the team around you, you've been an executive at organizations of different size, you know, AB and Ember is an example where we've had mutual friends and we both got a chance to work there and now building your own company, so to say, moving, moving in the startup environment. Um, tell us a lot, you know, as an executive surrounding yourself with the top performers, the best candidates out there is probably at top of your mind 24 seven, whether you actively recruiting or not. Tell us a little bit more about the, some of the hiring strategies that you have, you know, implemented in the past that maybe continuously help you within your current role. And maybe talk a little bit further as far as retaining that top talent, because one, one, one strategy is to attract that, but how do you retain that? Right. So, well, again, I'll, I'll do another confession. Maybe this is my confession. Day. I don't know. But, but I, you know, it's funny because I'm sure you've experienced this, but when you say the word startup, there's certain connotations associated with it for everybody. And you know, people get very excited about a startup and, and they're like, well, who wouldn't want to work for a startup? And then you realize, or people realize that when you're at a startup, it's like, no one's changing the toner on the printer. No one's taking the garbage out. <laughs> you know, it's like, no one's doing anything. You're, you're doing everything. And so I think initially there was some, you know, kind of almost like a euphoric type of reaction. Some of the people that, that, were attracted to the organization once they kind of figured out, oh, this is real work. You know, they, it, 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 you know, we had to cycle through that a little bit. So I think that that I, maybe I'd forgotten about that, or maybe we were just I had a really high hit rate in my prior iterations. But it's like you know, a startup is not for everybody, and, and kind of the sexiness of a startup is 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 very much kind of you know, you know kind of overrated. So I think it, it, at certain points in our cycle as an organization. There's been different types of skill sets that have been kind of more beneficial, but I'd say where we're at today, probably the most important thing from, a, this will sound maybe a little strange, but most important thing from a leadership standpoint is to actually be an operator. So, you know, when you're when you're a larger organization, so Avian Amro is a really good example, there's a lot of people who are kind of hovering over the business and thinking about strategy and thinking about long-term vision and, you know, maybe advising you on some things. And I think, you know, what we, we've tried to do is a little bit kind of like, but let's make our focus one thing and let's make sure that everybody is going in the same direction. And in order to do that, it's like you, you really can't be detached from the business. You have to be there. Now, obviously, you know, our, our uh, general counsel is not, you know, going and making, you know, underwriting mortgage loans every day, but the, having them, allowing them to have an understanding of how it works and how their staff plugs into that process and, and supports it is, is much more important now then, then, you know, you don't need that as much when you're much bigger and you have you know, more of an infrastructure in place. So I'd say now, you know, we, and it really got our folks focused. And, I, and I'm really proud of how the team has kind of transitioned that, that they're focused from a leadership standpoint. And it's like, you know, you need to be an operator. Now, that doesn't mean you're an operator 24-7, but you need to be an operator in this environment. So when it comes to selecting the, your, your partners, your teammates, your direct reports and so forth, You've had your share of great experience interviewing at different levels of the organization. And interviewing is such a complex space that, you know, I've been on the different sides of the equation of the, and I'm sure yourself as well. Um, how do you structure your interviews and what are the different questions that you like, like to ask? And more importantly, what do you look for in the responses when you talk to potential candidates who are looking to join your teams? Yeah. So <laughs> I don't know if I'm like, <laughs> 
I'm, I, I don't know if I'm a hard interviewer or an easy interviewer, but my favorite question is tell me about yourself. That's, that's the first question I ask. And it's, it's probably, it's probably the only scripted question that I have, obviously, depending on the role, there may be more specifics, but, but I really want to understand what makes that person tick. And what I'm really looking for, John is like, I figure if they, if they've gotten to me, they're probably proficient. So I don't need to check for proficiency. I may have like doing a role again, I may have more specific questions about level of proficiency, but I don't need to check for that. What I need to check for is what makes them tick. And will that uh, integrate into our culture? And so, I, you know, my questioning is, like I said, it's very open-ended because I want to hear them talk about themselves. I want to understand in what sequence they do that. And from there, you know, we usually have a broader dialogue about what makes them tick and, you know, what, what why, why they might be interested in, in, in working with HomePoint. And I, and I kind of learned that a little bit, like I said, from previously where, I made an assumption about startups. <laughs> like when someone says, I want to be in a startup, I was like, well, of course you do. It's great. And and what I learned is that they wanted to be in like, you know, some idealistic version of a startup and not the actual you know, you know, kind of grind that goes along with being in, in risk that goes along with being in a startup. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, like I said, I'm very open-ended. I start very high level. And then based on where the dialogue goes, they start to drill down. So that makes perfect sense. And it seems like you structured those interviews, not necessarily an interview per se, but more of a dialogue, like you said, yeah. in a two-way yeah. street where you have the conversation and you also give the candidate an opportunity to make their own assessment. So that makes perfect sense. So thank you for sharing that. Um, we've seen in the, in the news and in the industry, in the current market that there's a lot of companies going through restructuring this, they call the right sizing. At the end of the day, it's nothing, nothing exciting where a lot of people lose jobs because of what's going on in the industry. I would imagine you have to deal with some of the, some of that as well. How do you keep the employee morale, you know, high at the end of the day? What are some of the strategies that really help you stay engaged with the workforce at the same time, not get distracted with everything that goes on outside of your organization. Maybe just talk a little bit further about some of those things that help you communicate that vision much, you know, in a clear, clear fashion. Sure. So, so we have, so as I mentioned, we, we reset the organization we are smaller than we were before. And, you know, one of the reasons that we did that was that I, I felt like that I, I always feel like the CEO is in charge of culture. And so when you're a larger organization, you're less connected to the culture directly. And to me, part of the reset is an opportunity for me to get more, I'll say, immersed back in the culture. And we have, you know, so we have, we have principles and stakes. It's kind of like kind of what we anchor the organization on. And the principles are really my principles translated into, you know, I'll say more business terms. And then the stakes are really how you operationalize those principles. And so, again, when you get busy and you get bigger as an organization, I think a lot of times that can get diluted. And, and so... What we're really doing is re-engaging with our associates, or I am more specifically, re-engaging with our associates in a way that is much more kind of hands-on and involved than I was when we were a larger organization. Um, the second thing we've done is, is we have had, it's a return office has been a big challenge for us. We've kind of stopped and started and stopped and started. And we, we have a, a number, a pretty significant percentage of remote associates that are always going to be remote because they're not coincident to one of our sites. But this with literally this week we've said we now we have a return to office strategy there's no going back <laughs> so 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 and it's been it's very light from an attendance standpoint you know it's not a forced march five days a week like like i guess the the bad old days uh but but we're not going back and one of the reasons we're doing it and we're, we're making a very kind of a 
rounded in its orientation in that it's just not just about coming back to work. It's about activities while you're at work. It's about interacting while you're at work and, you know, in, in, uh, uh, not in a transactional sense, but more in a relationship sense. And so I think that to me, you know, somewhere along the way in this two year odyssey, two plus year odyssey, that's been remote, fully remote. Um, there's a little bit of a connection that needs to be reattached and, and reinforced. And so I think that's, that's a really important part of, of what we're doing um, to make sure that, that it's understood. It's like, we, we had to reset as an organization, but it's like th those of us that are here, we're all going to be going in the same direction. We're all going to be aligned behind the vision and mission for home point. Makes perfect sense. And now just shifting the focus more on you as a, as an individual, as a professional, um, as far as your content diet, what do you consume on a daily basis to keep yourself informed, keep yourself educated on all the things that are going on, not only in the industry, but also some of the things that personally interest you share some of those resources with us. Sure. Um, yeah. So I, I'm a big, I guess, sir, is surfer kind of a legacy term. I don't know, but I, I do a lot of, I do a lot. I mean, there's a lot of go-to sites like Bloomberg is an example is, a, is very much a go-to site for me. Um, you know, the industry publications, national mortgage news, uh, housing wire, et cetera. So I try to keep in tune with it every day. I try to keep connected with a number of my CEO peers in the industry. I feel like I have good relationships with them. Um, and so, you know, I think that's a good way to understand you know, kind of some of the nuances of, of what's going on. Uh, I, I also, I'm a big reader of the New York Times and Economist Magazine. And it's, I think those two publications educate me as to what's going on in the world <laughs> on a very efficient basis. And, you know, frankly, sometimes when I read them, I don't know if I want to know all this, but, but, but I think, again, I, I really feel like it's, it's interesting for me personally, but also it's almost like philosophically, I want to be kind of well-rounded enough about what's going on because there may be an element of it that applies to the home point business, but also it just kind of keeps me learning every day. So one of my, one of my personal uh, uh, print, personal principles is get a little bit better every day. And I don't know how you do that unless you're constantly kind of out there reading sources, you know, or, uh, uh, obtaining sources of information that can inform you of things that maybe you don't want to know about, but, you know, at least, at least you do understand what's going on. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And it, it, it's funny because I operate in a very similar fashion, but I'm using podcasting conversation just like right. this as an. I do a lot more. I do a lot more podcast listening than I used to as well, and I've, <laughs> I've kind of broadened broadened out as well. So thank you for reminding me of that. It would have yeah. been bad if I didn't say that, actually. So good. Yeah, no, <laughs> but it's a it's a great great avenue for me to learn. It's a great avenue. It's a channel for me to connect with folks that are a lot more successful, a lot more knowledgeable about certain areas. And in the exactly conversation like this, I, I'm able to extract a lot more value versus just maybe consuming some of the resources that we do on a daily basis. So there's just a little plug for, for what works for me. And I have one of the final questions for you, which is pretty loaded in the sense that the advice or maybe a series of advice that you had received early in your career that continuously, you know, you, you, you come back to that even to this day. Maybe I, you know, talk a little bit more about this. What are not maybe specific certain like words of wisdom, so to say, but <laughs> or more of a more of a strategy, more of a theory in the sense that look, it helped me in the past. The reason I asked that is because a good portion of our listeners are early stage career professionals who are looking to get into the industry, but also 
executives like yourself and the reason they subscribe is because they want to learn from their peers in the industry sure. so maybe just share some of your frame of thoughts from that from that standpoint well, like i said i said before but i think probably that the there's two things that i learned from my mentor i'd say you know, lots of other things but two primary things one is dislocation creates opportunity so you know when i stepped into the mortgage business i had no idea how cyclical it was i had no idea what dislocation meant but I learned, you know, when we formed we formed the the business that he had a vision for, you know, that I soon learned that that was based on a dislocation at the time. This is '80s, so savings and loan crisis created this huge dislocation in the mortgage business because both the source of funds for more primary source of funds for mortgage and where most of the loan officers work both started to you know started to fragment away. So so that's probably the biggest strategic lesson I learned. John, the second is the importance of culture, and again. You know, when I, when I was hired by my mentor, I was 24 years old. You know, I thought I knew a lot more than I did. And I, I didn't really kind of even know what, what culture was per se, but we developed a culture. I figured out that's what we did. And then I, I've kind of, you know, both evolved in how I, I'll say the deliberate nature in building it, but also, you know, kind of how it's matured over time. Because as you might imagine, a culture that you build in your 20s, is going to look a bit different than a culture that you build in your fifties. So, so those are probably the two biggest lessons that I learned from my mentor that have really carried me throughout my whole career. Super exciting. Last but not least, what is one book that uh, maybe you're currently reading, or if that's different, what 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 is one book that you always recommend to others? And why is that? <laughs> okay, this is going to sound a little weird. I actually have, I'm gonna, I'm, I actually have five. Do it. One is a four. So, because I've gotten asked this before, and I don't know if I've given very good answers, but I've thought about it more. So. Uh, Robert Caro wrote a four volume biography of Lyndon Johnson. And I read all four volumes and each volume is like a thousand pages. So, you know, that I know that probably has nothing to do with business or anything like that, but it really impacted me both in learning more about LBG, but also that amount of time that Robert Caro took in writing those books and the amount of detail and the meticulousness with which he wrote those biographies, you know, those, those volumes rather. It, I mean, it just, it's always kind of stuck with me. And like I said, it's like, I don't, I don't feel like I've answered those questions very well. I'm always trying to think like, what do people want to hear as opposed to what's truly impacted me? The second one is uh, the David Foster Wallace about a, a, a graduation speech, which has been made into a tiny book, which is called This is Water. I recommend that for any young person who's coming out of school or, you know, kind of going into their career. It's a wonderful speech. And, uh, you know, he was obviously a troubled man, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of his books are pretty interesting too. So those are the, those are, I, I cheated a little bit. But those are the five books that I recommend. Oh, that's super cool. And we'll make those titles available in the show notes. Willie, I can't thank you enough for your time today. Very short and insightful conversation. I personally learned quite a bit. And just like with every guest on the show, what I love doing is a follow-up conversation recording in about a year where we revisit the conversation from a year ago and see if everything we've discussed still makes sense, still applies. So I'm definitely looking forward to doing that with you as well. Sounds like a plan. All right, John, thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Ivy Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to our RSS feed on ivypodcast.com and all major podcasting platforms like Spotify and iTunes. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a rating on iTunes.